Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. If you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is where we're at this morning. <clears throat> chapter 11, it seems to take a little bit of a, a, a different tack here as Paul is, is writing this letter. Um, he's dealing with some personal issues that are going on <clears throat> with the church in Corinth. And uh, one of the things that kind of struck me as I was preparing and studying this chapter is how many times the Apostle Paul uses the word folly, uh, foolishly, fool, fools. Um, it, it occurs seven times in this chapter. The word fool means stupid or ignorant or egotistic. And, of course, folly, it's, it's part of the same root word, foolishness, mindlessness, and with no purpose. And what Paul's going to be addressing in this in this letter now, or this portion of this letter, he's got to he's got to kind of defend himself. He's got to talk about his credentials. He's going to talk about uh, you know uh, who he is as an apostle and his authority and all these things. And and for him, it, it's like a waste of time. He doesn't want to boast about himself. He doesn't want to talk about himself or draw attention to himself. He wants to preach the word and, 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 and preach the gospel and see lives changed. And so for him to go through this, it, it's, it's stupid in his estimation. It doesn't really serve a purpose, but he's been forced to do this because of the false teachers that had, had come into Corinth after Paul had left, and they're stirring up the people against Paul. And so now Paul is addressing that. And so verse 1 of chapter 11 says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, a little, you know, mindlessness, a little stupid, stupid stuff. <laughs> if you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you, dare bear, uh, you do bear with me, excuse me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin, virgin to Christ. Betrothal, that's maybe not a common word in our, in our culture, in our, in our, uh, in our, uh, our what we say typically. Um, a betrothal would be similar to a marriage engagement in our culture. So if you can kind of picture in your mind what a marriage engagement is like, uh, a betrothal is similar to that, only it's much more serious than an engagement. Um, a couple that was betrothed, they were considered as good as married. Even though the marriage uh, ceremony wasn't consummated yet, they were still apart from each other, but they were considered as husband and wife in that, uh, in that point. And to end a, betro a betrothal, and I don't know, maybe some of you have ever been engaged before and then you cut out, you broke off your engagement for whatever reason. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's devastating. I've never broken off an engagement, but I'm sure it's devastating. Well, a betrothal was that much more serious. It was akin to divorcing somebody. So it's really pretty serious here. And so Paul here is talking about himself. He says, I've betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, according to William Barclay, for a Jewish wedding, 
there were two people that were called the friends of the bridegroom. One represented the bridegroom and one represented the bride. And they had different duties that they would do. Uh, one of the things they would do is they'd act as a liaison between the bride and the groom. You know, they'd run in between and talk and pass messages and, you know, communicate between the two. Um, they would also carry invitations to the guests that would at eventually attend the wedding. Um, when it would take place. But they also had another unique responsibility, and they were to, uh, they were responsible for the chastity of the bride. And so in the marriage analogy, or in the betrothal analogy here that Paul is using, Jesus Christ, of course, is the bridegroom. The church of Corinth is the bride who's betrothed to Christ. And Paul is like one of the friends of the bridegroom, responsible for the spiritual chastity of the bride, which is the church of Corinth. And so verse 3 says, But I fear lest, how, uh, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul's concern is their spiritual deception. He wanted to keep them from falling prey to spiritual deception. And really what we're going to be looking at this morning is that theme, how to keep from falling prey to spiritual deception. We'll be looking at this morning. Well, if you think about it, how he mentions how Eve was deceived uh, by the serpent's craftiness. Well, how was Eve deceived? by the serpent, by Satan. Well, he lied to, to Eve. He deceived her. He promised that she would be more spiritual if she listened to him. He even said it. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That sounds kind of good, doesn't it? You'll, you'll be more spiritual if you do this thing. Well, Paul's teaching was way too simple for the false teachers. There have been people that, you know, sometimes the, the, a, a, a false teacher, they will come up with some like a, a hidden knowledge or some new revelation that the church has never heard before. I've had people come to me before and, and have said this. I've got this revelation that the church has missed it all these centuries and now I've got this new revelation. And, and I kind of think, well, that's kind of interesting. It almost seems kind of arrogant because, you know, the Holy Spirit's still been alive and active in the, whole, in the world and in the church all these years. And now all of a sudden, this one generation's got this special insight. So there's a, this appeal to a, a hidden knowledge or whatever, which, which really is it amounts to spiritual pride and it fosters that in people. We had an individual in our church uh, a number of years ago that got involved with what I believe to be a false teaching locally here. And uh, one of the things that they were communicated was, with was the people said, hey, we're uh, not ready for that spiritual knowledge. And speaking about this church, they told this person, they said, stay in the church where you're at, but just realize that they're not ready. They're not ready for this new revelation. And, and, uh, and so, you know, but that's really what, that's the deception that, that ser the serpent used or Satan used for Eve was to appeal to her spirituality. And so Paul's concern here is that their minds would be corrupted from the simplicity in Christ. Faith in Christ and who Christ is, it's so simple. We know from scriptures he's fully God, and yet he was born a man, so he's fully God and fully man. We know that Jesus 
physically and historically lived, that he was crucified, that he died and was buried, that he resurrected on the third day, that he ascended into heaven, and that he's going to return for his bride. Um, we also know from scriptures that salvation is by faith in Christ's atonement on the cross. It's so simple that even a young child can understand the gospel message. And yet there have been scholars that are much wiser than most of us, certainly much wiser than me, who have who've just, they have just the, 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 the profoundness of the gospel. It's been amazing for them. But here's the first thing for you and I to remember how to not fall prey to spiritual deception, and that's this. Don't move away from the simplicity that's in Christ. Don't move away from the simplicity that is in Christ. In John chapter 6, there were some people that came to Jesus, and they said, what shall we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said this to them. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Just put your trust in Christ. That's all you need to do. So if someone comes to you and says, you put your trust in Christ, yeah, but you also put your trust in this. You have to do this or you have to do that in order to be saved. That's moving away from the simplicity of the gospel. Simplicity of the gospel is faith in Christ alone. Verse 4. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. This is Paul's concern. Hey, you might hear someone's going to be preaching a different Jesus or, or another gospel or a different spirit. And, and so here's the second point in, in how to not fall prey to spiritual deception. Understand this. That just because someone uh, uh, claims to believe in Jesus Christ and they claim to worship Jesus, it does not mean that they're worshiping the same Lord that you and I worship. You remember when uh, Rip, Rip Romney, Rip Romney <laughs> when Mitt Romney was running for president and uh, he was really trying to court, trying to get the evangelical vote, and his thing is, hey, I'm a Christian just like everybody else, but the thing is he belongs to the the Church of uh, the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, the Mormons. Well, listen, the Mormons do not worship the same Jesus you worship. The Mormon Jesus, he's one of many gods, the little G. They consider him the half-brother of Lucifer. That's not the Jesus that you and I worship. That's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. Jehovah Witnesses, they believe that Jesus was a created being and that he used to be Michael the Archangel. That's a big difference from what you and I believe. The Jesus in Islam, they consider him the son of Mary. They consider him a prophet. They believe that he was uh, miraculously born. And yet, they say that he was not the son of God and that he was not crucified and never died. And yet, they acknowledge Jesus. Christian scientists, their Jesus is not God, but yet the son of God. I don't know how they work that out, but somehow they do. Um, Baha'i faith, I don't know if you, that's not, maybe not that popular now, but the Baha'i Jesus, he's not the only begotten son, he was not crucified, he was not resurrected, and he's not the unique savior. And there's a lot of uh, cults that believe that, that Jesus is just one of many ways to God. Scientologist Jesus, he's not even an enlightened being, he's just 
one step above what they call clear, which was kind of low on their scale of enlightenment. So they didn't even think Jesus was enlightened. He's just, he's a little bit above everybody else, but that's about it. The Unitarian Universalist Church, Jesus was simply a man and not supernatural. Here's one that I'm sure everybody is involved or knows about. The Divine Life Society Integral Yoga Institute. Anybody here? Uh, yeah, me neither. But anyways, they're Jesus. He's not a person, but Christhood is an experience. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of different people that say, oh, yeah, I worship Jesus or I believe in Jesus. But you need to understand it may not be the same Jesus that you and I worship, the Jesus of the scriptures. He's concerned that they might receive a different spirit or, or that they might be susceptible to a different spirit. Listen, signs and wonders, you know, there's people that get just caught up in signs and wonders. And we know from the book of Acts, and we've, I've seen miracles occur before, you know, the signs and wonders follow the teaching of the word. But it's so important not to get your focus on signs and wonders. So that's all you look for. If you see a sign and a wonder, that makes something legitimate. Because our enemy can deceive with signs and wonders. In fact, Paul told the Thessalonian church, speaking of the coming of the Antichrist, this is the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And I believe as we're getting closer to the last days, and I do believe we're getting closer, that there is going to be a greater and greater amount of spiritual deception. Signs and wonders, I think, are going to increase. John wrote this in 1 John 4. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming as now already in the world. So we're to test the spirits. Just because you see in a sign and a wonder, that doesn't mean that it's from God. There's only one gospel that can save you. He says, I'm concerned, a different gospel. A different gospel which you've not received. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If someone comes to you and they say, uh, you know, okay, you need to believe in Jesus, but Jesus and you got to do this thing or be a part of this group or, or whatever, Jesus and whatever else, that basically is religious legalism. That's not the simplicity of the gospel. Cults will say it's Jesus or someone else. That again, that's a false teaching. There's only one gospel and that's faith in Christ Jesus alone. You know, Satan's got a lot of methods for attacking the church. Uh, we know right now the church in, in China is experiencing a, a, a quite a, a huge uptick in persecution uh, since, this, uh, since the COVID-19 epidemic. Uh, the Chinese government has used it as a pretext to really clamp down on churches. And so they've been persecuted heavily. And we know throughout the world that there are a lot of brothers and sisters that are being persecuted. And, you know, we're starting to kind of feel like this persecution, like we're on the, we're on the cusp of being persecuted against. And I would argue probably the churches in California are being persecuted against, discriminated against. 
Um, and, it, and it's starting to happen in, in our environment. But you know the interesting thing about persecution? It never really works. Because when the church is persecuted, when it, when it costs something to attend church, when it costs something to live your life as a Christian, to be known as a Christian, it really weeds out those that are just kind of you know, complacent. And the church grows whenever there's been persecution throughout the world, the church grows. So that really doesn't work, and yet Satan still keeps on trying to do it. So if persecution doesn't work, well, there's another tactic that the enemy uses. He probably coined the phrase, if he can't fight them, join them, because that's what he does. If he can't fight them from the outside through persecution, he's going to hurt it from the inside. Do you remember the parable that Jesus said of the, the, about, told about the seeds in the sower? And, and, and the seeds are scattered on the ground. And on, on one place, the seeds, it says the birds of the air came and ate the seeds before they had a chance to, to take root in the ground. And as he explained that parable to his disciples, the birds of the air was basically the enemy, Satan, who's stealing the word from those people before it gets a chance to, to take heart, root in their hearts. Well, Jesus also told a parable about the mustard seed. And this, the, the, he was comparing the church to this, uh, the kingdom of heaven to the mustard seed. And he says it grows to this, this abnormally large bush. A mustard seed's a plant. But it, this one grows into a tree. And he says the birds of the air nest in it. Now, if you look at both those, those, those parables, the, in the first parable, the birds of the air are Satan. Well, I believe that the birds of the air in the, in the parable of the mustard seed's the same thing. It's the enemy. And so the enemy has infiltrated the church. Well, how does, they hurt, how does he hurt the church from the inside? Well, right from the get-go, uh, it was through false teaching. The New Testament that you and I read, all these letters that are written from Paul and Peter and James, these letters are all addressing, and for the most part, are addressing false teaching that right away started creeping up in the new church as the church was growing. A new heresy would spring up. The apostles would hear about it. They'd address it. That's what the majority of our New Testament is, is addressing these false teachings. And so that's one of the ways the enemy will infiltrate the church. Another is attacking the validity of the word of God. And that really goes back to the lie in Genesis 3. Did, did God really say that? You know, that's, what's, that's what the serpent said to Eve. Did God really say that you'll die if you eat this fruit? Did he really say that? And now, in, nowadays, there's people that are attacking the validity of the word of God. Did God really say that? I mean, can you really just read the Gospels and read the Bible and take it at word for word as what it says? Can you actually do that? And that, that's the lie of Satan to, to bring that, that sense of, of doubt in people's hearts. Of course, division and distraction that's one of, the, one, of the, one of the tactics of the enemy. Corinth dealt with a lot of division and distractions. And then, then another thing, if that doesn't work, he'll discredit the gospel message. And finally, if that doesn't work, he'll discredit the preacher of the gospel. And in Corinth, the enemy had tried all these things. There was division, there was pride, there was distraction. And then what he finally did was he tried to discredit the apostle Paul through these false teachers. And so Paul here, he's feeling like he's forced to defend himself, but he thinks it's a waste of time because it's, it's not really, it's not 
spreading the gospel, he's having to deal with these false teachers here. Verse 5, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Paul was Saul before he was uh, before he became to faith in Christ Jesus. He was an avid reader and student of the Old Testament and Judaism. He studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel, who was a well-known, well-respected rabbi. He was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a professional lawkeeper. They studied the law and they 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 observed it to the nth degree. And, and that was who Paul was. Paul was a voracious reader and a voracious student of the Old Testament. When then Paul got saved, what did Paul do? He became, he devoted that same zeal to understanding how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He went off to Arabia and spent a few years, not Saudi Arabia, it's actually a, what's now part of Syria, but he went off to what was known as Arabia in that time for many years. And, and undoubtedly during that time, he's just reading the scriptures. They didn't have the Old Testament of those days. So they just had the Old Testament scriptures and he's going through the Old Testament scriptures and he's seeing Jesus on every page. And then he was able to refute anybody that would come to him and try to argue with him about Judaism. He was, he was able to point him back to the Old Testament and say, look at there's Jesus Christ in the scriptures. He might not have had the oratory skills that some of the other preachers, Apollos, for example, was a Greek and he was well known for his smooth preaching. He could preach a good message. Paul maybe didn't alliterate his sermons. Uh, maybe he didn't have five points. You know, there are five points in alliteration and that, you know, that's a good sermon there. But he knew the scriptures and he knew how to apply them. And that's key. See, if you don't want to fall prey to spiritual deception, deception, here's another thing that you should do, is be a student. In fact, be a zealous student of the word. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Don't take my word. When I say things and you go, oh, that's interesting, don't take my word for granted. Be a Berean, right? A Berean's, whatever Paul said, they would dig into the scriptures to see, oh, I want to see if that's really true. And they would go through and they would, they would study the scriptures and, and, and they would learn that way. And so you and I, we need to understand what you know and what you believe and why. But, and that's knowledge. We need scriptural knowledge. We need to not be ignorant about the scriptures. We need to study the scriptures, be zealous about it. But with that knowledge, we also need wisdom. Wisdom is a little bit different than knowledge. Knowledge is you, you gain all this knowledge, but wisdom is what do you do with that knowledge? And that's the other aspect of this. Not only are we to be a student of the word and, and know what you believe and why you believe it, but know how to apply spiritual principles in your own life. That is so important. I've known people that can quote scriptures, you know, they know the scriptures, they can quote verses, then you look at their life and you go, well, yeah, but why aren't you doing that then? You can quote a good message, but why, why aren't you living that way? And so learn how to apply scriptural principles to your own situation. Paul wrote, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So 
know the scriptures and understand how to apply them in your own life, in your own situation. Verse 7. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from boasting, from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. The Corinthians, and Paul's addressing this here, the Corinthians were upset that Paul didn't charge them for his message. How many of you, I can maybe have a raise of hands, there's not too many in here this morning, but how many of you came in here and you were bummed that we didn't charge admission when you came in? Can I see your hands, anybody? There's one person, a couple people that are bummed, three. Oh boy, everybody's <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Nobody's bummed that we didn't charge admission, right? You go, why were they upset that Paul was preaching free of charge? Maybe you're listening to the live stream this morning and you're like, man, why didn't he make that a pay-per-view? You know, maybe you're upset about that, you're offended. We're not offended, right? It's hard to understand why, why the Corinthians were offended by that. Well, here's, I think, why. And this, again, according to a guy by the name of William Barclay. In the Greek way of thinking, it was beneath the dignity of a free man to work with his hands. If you were a, a Greek in that culture, you weren't supposed to get your hands dirty. That's, that's, that's a, that's, you, you just were supposed to, however you were supposed to get your money, uh, you weren't supposed to do it by getting your hands dirty, basically. It was beneath the dignity of a free man. And here, Paul, he was a tent maker. He worked with his hands while he preached the gospel. Also, in the Greek world, teachers were supposed to make money from their teaching. And here's an example. Augustus, the Roman Empire, uh, emperor, he wasn't an empire, I don't think. He, I don't know if baseball is around then. Augustus, the Roman Empire, uh, emperor. <laughs> oh, boy. Augustus, the Roman emperor, paid Ver Ver some guy named Verius Flaccus, uh, the, the rhetorician, he was a speaker, <laughs> an annual salary of 100,000 sesterces, which in present day, and this is this guy William Barclays, right? In present day, purchasing power was the equivalent of a quarter of a million pounds. So I had to go, okay, well, that doesn't mean nothing to me here in the United States. Well, it basically boils down to he would have got about greater than $300,000 annually just for speaking. I'm not paid enough, man, I tell you. <laughs> not only that, but every town in the Roman Empire, they were entitled to grant an exemption from any civic burdens and any taxes to a certain amount of speakers in their, in their community. So they could pick, you know, I don't know how many, a certain amount, maybe, maybe a dozen. They could pick a dozen people that were, they, they spoke for a living. And those guys didn't have to pay taxes either. Man, I was like, hmm. Would have liked to have lived in those days. <laughs> that would have been cool, yeah. <laughs> you see, here's Paul. He's working with his hands. In that culture, that was humiliating. 
Here's Paul. He's not one of those groups of select speakers in, 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 in Corinth that are you know, exempt from taxes. He's not, he's not collecting huge sums of money. And it actually hurt their pride. It's, all, it's almost like they wanted to take pride in Paul because look at, we've got a speaker that, man, he breaks in a lot of money. He draws crowds and, and uh, yeah, he doesn't work with his hands, you know. And so Paul did everything that was just the opposite of what their pride spoke to. And so Paul went against all that pride. One of the things you might wonder is, well, okay, so Paul was saying that while he was in Corinth, that the believers in Macedonia, and that was probably Philippi mainly, because we talked about that in a couple chapters ago, why did he accept support from them, but he wouldn't accept support from the Corinthians? That's an interesting question, and I think it's a fair question. Well, you know, there's no record of Paul receiving any kind of income when he was in Philippi or anywhere where he went. It wasn't where, you know, he, he went into a town and set up some kind of a, you know, a donation system and then, and then he started teaching. He taught free of charge. He worked with his hands. He didn't want money to become a hindrance to the gospel. But we do know, and we talked about this in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, that the church at Philippi, they begged Paul to receive their donations to give to the saints that were suffering in Jerusalem and, and undoubtedly also to support Paul here, as I think the evidence shows it here. We know that Philippi was a very poor church. It wasn't a wealthy church like Corinth was. And so you know, their hearts were there to give, but they didn't really have that much to give. And so Paul received what he got while he was in Corinth so that he didn't have to, he didn't get supported by the Corinthians, but he also worked aside that. What, Paul would do whatever it would take to get the gospel out. That's what was important to Paul. Verse 12, but what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is of no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Satan, you know, we have this picture in our culture. He wears a red suit, right? He's got horns and he's got this pitchfork and, the, you know, this little tail with a little arrow in the end. That, that, that's that, that picture that we have of Satan. The Bible actually describes Lucifer Satan. In Ezekiel chapter 28, I'm just going to read this to you, verses 12 through 15. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. And this is speaking to this king of Tyre, but it's also prophetically, it's describing Lucifer. And you'll understand hopefully as I read this. Thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, and sapphire, turquoise, 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 and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. 
I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. That's Lucifer was a glorious created angel until he fell, until pride entered him and he sinned and he rebelled against God. So our, our picture in our mind of Satan is kind of, it's kind of, you know, it's skewed, obviously. In fact, in Isaiah, there's a prophecy about, about Lucifer. Isaiah 14, verse 16 through and 17, it says, Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open up? who did not open the house of his prisoners. We're going to see Lucifer and we're going to look at him and go, man, he's not a guy in a red suit with horns. He's, it's like that is what caused all the havoc in creation. That's the one that led all these people into sin. That's the destroyer, the liar, the thief. So this concept that Satan's this, you know, this, this guy in a red suit, it's, it's flawed. He can appear as an angel of light, and we see that he was actually created and very gloriously. So it shouldn't be alarming to us that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. He can, he can appear glorious. However, well, I think what should be alarming to us is that he has ministers. He has people. And these false prophets that Paul is addressing, these were some of Satan's ministers. And they were transforming themselves into uh, ministers of righteousness. Well, how do we recognize these false prophets? I mean, after all, they claim to be true apostles. And you'll come across people that are false teachers and they'll claim, hey, I'm speaking the truth. I'm one of God's chosen, you know, messengers. And they also conform in outer actions and appearances as true apostles of Christ. On the outside, they look, they, they walk and they talk and they look like an apostle. But here's the thing, they confuse the body through their deception, the body of Christ, I should say. For them, if you listen to them, if you, if you pay attention, not that we should, but the gospel with them is no longer simple. It's no longer Jesus. It's Jesus and or Jesus or. They possess a knowledge or a revelation that others do not. They've got some hidden wisdom that they want to impart to you. They cast doubt on the deity of Jesus and the validity of scriptures. Again, just like the lie in the Garden of Eden. Did Jesus really say that? You know, you're reading this and this is what you're, but that's not exactly what it means. This is what it really means. That's the lies of the false teachers. And then finally, just look at the fruit of their ministry. And the fruit of their ministry is death. Paul says this in verse 16. I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly. In this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. I don't know if you can sense a little sarcasm there. 
You put up with fools gladly since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To your shame, I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. You can really sense that Paul, man, he's just like, I don't want to be talking about me, but I have to address this issue. Now, according to, he, he says, man, it's these, these, these false teachers, they'll put you into bondage. They'll even strike you on the face, and you accept it. And according to rabbinical tradition, it was the right in that day for a rabbi or a teacher to strike a student on the face if they didn't listen to him or agree with him. Everybody agree with me this morning? <laughs> Listen, if some false teacher is telling you you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to be part of their group or to be saved, that's a red flag. If somebody is always taking, they're always expecting, they're always demanding all of your time, your resources, and your devotion, or it's, it's, it's just increasingly growing and growing, that's another red flag. If a leader exalts him or herself, if the focus is on them, it's all about them, that's another red flag. If they become abusive towards you, in other words, literally physically abusive, or maybe verbally abusive, or, and this is another form of abuse, I think, they try to shame or ostracize you, single you out because you won't submit to them, that's another red flag. If those things are occurring in any kind of ministry that you get involved with, uh, you know, I'm just here to warn you, man, that, that could very well be a cult. You need to watch out, get away. You know, and, and I say this carefully because, you know, I'm not to judge another man's ministry, but I'll be on, and I won't name names or anything, but I, I have seen some Christian ministries in my estimation where they're walking a fine line between being cult-like, where it's a cult, a personality of a pastor, or whatever, or or they just have there's just so much bondage that they walk a fine line between ministry and a cult. And so we need to be careful. So the, those are some of the ways to 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 watch out for getting involved in in uh, uh, a false teaching or even a cult-like type of ministry. What I just read there, let, let me read that to you again. For you put up, in verse 20, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. I want you to compare that to what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What a difference. Jesus brings rest. Cults bring bondage. Matthew 12, verse 18 through 21. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved one, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles 
will trust. He won't break a bruised reed. He won't snuff out a smoking flax. You know, he won't put it out. He won't quench one that's just a little flame. Listen, I, I just want to reiterate what we've looked at this morning. How to keep from falling prey to spiritual deception. The very first thing we mentioned, don't move away from the simplicity that is in Christ, okay? It's that simple. Faith in Christ and Christ alone. Understand that just because someone claims to be a worshiper of Jesus, and they believe in Jesus, does not mean that they're worshiping the same Lord that you and I are worshiping. Realize that the miraculous doesn't necessarily come from God. The devil can perform signs and wonders. And in fact, we know towards the last days that there will be much more spiritual deception that will take place. There's only one gospel message that can save you, and that's faith in Christ. Another way, be a zealous student of God's word, man. Understand God's word. Understand what you believe and why you believe it. Don't take, don't take a church's teaching or my teaching at face value. Go to the scriptures and, and look at it yourselves. Understand it. And then more importantly, or as an, as an added onto that, learn to apply it in your life. Because the scriptures are there for you and I to live our lives from. It's not just for us to know it, but how do we apply it in this situation, that situation? That's where the wisdom that, that the Holy Spirit gives us um, as we study and as we apply God's word. So learn how to apply it. And then finally, if it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. It looks like a duck. Good chance it is a duck, okay? If you see the hallmarks of something being cult-like, they talk like it, they walk like it, they look like it, um, or if they're behaving that way, uh, just be careful because that's how people can get sucked in and become spiritual deceived. And it, we, history is replete with people that have been caught up into the, these false teachings. And maybe they started out, you know, some of these false teachers, they, they started out uh, in, on the right tracks. They, they were sharing the gospel. They loved the Lord. And something happened and, and things changed. And pretty soon they're way off the rails in their teaching. And they're way off in the rails in what they're doing and their expectations. And, and and, you know, it's amazing. Some people, they just, they just kind of follow it. And they, they don't realize that, man, they're just, they've been sucked into that. And so these are the warning signs. And these are the ways that you and I can prevent uh, from falling prey to spiritual deception. I'm going to stop right there for this morning. Next week, we're going to look at the rest of chapter 11. And we're going to actually go into chapter 12 and look at that as well. Um, because I think what I really want to point out in, in this next portion is how to deal with discouragement and how to deal with uh, things that are a struggle. Um, I think a lot of us are going through those kind of things right now, and so I think it'll be a timely message for us as well. So uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on up and lead us in worship. And uh, I want to close with a word of prayer before they, um, before they do the last song. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word today. Lord, I know that Paul felt like it was a foolish waste of time to defend himself, to, to, to even bring up these things. And yet, Lord, we look at this and we see it as guidelines for us. Lord, what to look out for, how not to become spiritually deceived. And so, Lord, I'm thankful that Paul, even though he felt it was foolish, I'm thankful that he wrote this. 
that we can learn from it, Lord, that we can apply it in our own lives, and that, Lord, we can live our lives by the principles in your word. So I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I want to pray for each and every individual here, Lord, that's here present in the sanctuary and those that are watching online. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds from falling prey to spiritual deception, especially as we know that it's going to increase in these last days. Lord, I pray that we would, would not stray from the simplicity of faith in you and in you alone, Lord Jesus. So we thank you that you've made it so simple that even a child knows Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Lord, thank you for that confidence, for that simple faith. Lord, we don't have to have a PhD to trust in you. Lord, we just need to understand and believe your scriptures that what you said is true. And so we thank you and bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.